tens of millions of families with Alzheimer's disease and dementia all over the world, including our family. We are Alls in the Fam. I'm Alan Fair. And I'm Polly Fair Noise. We're siblings, we are parents, but we're also caregivers. This is our podcast. This is our support group. Welcome to our family. Alzheimer's sucks, but this family lives, laughs, and learns as we fight for a cure. Welcome. Hey, sisters. Hi, Alan. Hey, Alan. Holly, Bonnie, Tracy, and Alan here. We are alls in the fam. And today we're going to share some books that each of us have read um, when our mom got sick and we learned that she had Alzheimer's. Um, We didn't know that much about it and had to educate ourselves about it. So today each of us are going to share a book that had a particular impact. And I think we picked these books because we think uh, they'd be really great books for others to read that are maybe beginning their own journey to understand the disease and um, the role of the caretaker. So uh, who wants to go first? I vote for Bonnie. Okay, I'll go first. <laughs> so um, I have a little bit different take than than everyone else. I'm doing a fiction book, and it's called uh, Elizabeth is Missing. And it's the story of a woman named Maud who is going through the uh, stages of dementia and starts out living at home with her daughter as a caretaker. And she is much like our mother. Uh, just her personality and the way that she reacts to things, her independence, um, so many pieces of the book. And the relationship with the daughter is very similar to the relationship that we've had with our mom, you know, kind of going from being daughter to being caretaker and how that journey goes. The, The interplay with her granddaughter is very similar to what we've seen, what I see with my kids and how they react to her. And I know the most popular fiction book, which was made into a movie, was Still Alice by Lisa Geneva. But that book is more about early onset Alzheimer's in the course of still living with her husband and and their family. So great book, too. But um, but Elizabeth is Missing is much more parallel to what we're seeing in our family. Yeah, Bonnie, Uh, I read that book, too. And um Still Alice is a beautiful book, um, but I think it's more about early onset Alzheimer's. So a different disease that progresses more quickly. And she also, the, the woman in Still Alice was living with her husband. Our mother was living by herself, similar to the character Maud in um, Elizabeth is Missing. And it was almost a relief to me to read that book because the other book, I think was still Alice was more popular, but Elizabeth was missing was just a revelation. You told me about it and it was great. Yeah. And I'll tell you, reading it again, uh, basically three years later, it's even more, you just see even more how well this author did capturing the, uh, the brain of someone with dementia. So Maud starts out, it's written in her voice. And so you get this picture of how she's confused in the present, but her memories from her past, which it goes into, are so incredibly vivid. And her struggle with communicating to the current outside world, what she wants, what she needs, navigating within her own house to try and feed herself, 
to remain independent, to make her needs wanted. It's just, it's a very good book. Uh, yeah, I I haven't read it, but when we were talking about it before we started recording, I went on Amazon and read an excerpt of it. And the way the author captures the internal narrative of the the main character is really uh, really interesting. <laughs> the closest thing it reminded me of is I remember when I read Cujo by Stephen King, and and he tried to capture the dog, the rabid dogs in her <laughs> monologue. Uh, so I, I think it's pretty, um, pretty impressive writing as well. Well, Bond, I need to read that. Yeah, <laughs> Tracy, you should. I'm surprised oh, you didn't. Who's the writer, by the way? Emma Healy is the is the author, and Healy is H E A L E Y. And we'll make sure that the link is put up on our podcast site. What was your I book, can get Tracy? Next. So my book is kind of unusual as well. It's not fiction, but it, it is how to talk so kids can learn. And it's by the esteemed Adele Faber and Elaine Mazelish. And you may have heard, I may have mispronounced her name, sorry, but you may have heard of how to talk so kids will listen and listen so kids will talk, which I also read when my twins were little. Um, this one is how to talk so kids can learn. And I just love all of their books and have found them to be very helpful in communication with anyone, but particularly my children and my mother now that she has Alzheimer's. And one of the things that I love about the book is that you read a section and then they have a little quick reminder page trying to show you guys. So it's like a little summary, Tracy? A little summary checklist. And so I have so many of them marked in this book. And then another thing that I love about their books is that they have these comic pages. And, you know, they're just cute little things that you can identify with, with your loved ones. And I used to keep them in my bathroom when my twins (laughs) were little. And I would just pick it up and read one of the quick reminder pages or one of the comics. And it would just kind of help me get through that day. I always felt like I was a better communicator with really anyone. But this so how did example, that help with mom? Yeah, well, I'm going to give you an example. Sure. So for example, this quick reminder that I'm looking at right now says children need to have their feelings acknowledged. And that is so true with our mother. She's often very frustrated about little things. And to us, we would just be able to move on quickly or process what had happened and not need to complain or become upset outwardly, but that's not true with an Alzheimer's patient. And just as an example, in this book, it says, instead of dismissing the person's feelings, you can identify the child's feelings. So I was thinking about how our mother often complains about the weather and it really frustrates her because she doesn't remember perhaps that yesterday was a sunny day. She remembers that we've had many cloudy days. And if it's a cloudy day, she'll say, why has it been cloudy so often? It's like this all the time. We never have nice weather or sunny days. And my instinct would be to say, well, mom, you might not remember, but yesterday it was actually really sunny and nice. But of course she doesn't want to hear that. She in her mind believes that it's been cloudy and it is cloudy and she's frustrated. 
So this says, identify the person's feelings. And you might say something like, well, you sound so disappointed. It can be upsetting when you want to have a nice day so you can go out and do nice things and you have bad weather. I get it, you know, so identify, acknowledge their feelings. The next thing you could do would be at least acknowledge their feeling with some kind of agreement, like, "Mm -hmm, you know, I know I see that kind of thing. And that can prompt them to talk more about how they're feeling or why they're frustrated. So even just, you know, not saying much, but acknowledging with one word, uh, the next thing would be to give into their fantasy. And this was always one of my favorites with my children. And I try to do this with my mother often when she talks about the weather. So I say, wouldn't it be awesome if we could just go wherever we wanted right now? And I love this one particularly because another thing that our mother will say sometimes is I wish I could just get on a plane and go to, and sometimes she'll throw out the most surprising place. It will be like Acapulco or I don't know, like far flung places that I know she's never been, but we never quite know what she's going to say. So sometimes if she doesn't say that, I'll say, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could just take off and go to the Italian Riviera. And she'll say, Oh, yes, I wish we could go to Mexico. And then we'll just kind of sit there and name all these fabulous places. And we'll have a five minute conversation where we're just listing places that we would love to go. And I used to do that with my kids too, when they would be frustrated with a teacher, I would say something like, wouldn't it be great if you could just get up in front of the class and be the teacher for five minutes and show that teacher what you want to hear. And we would, you know, kind of come up with other things that I shouldn't probably speak about that were very inappropriate that we would (laughs) make it do. But that was always one of my favorite ideas out of this book was to give in to their fantasy. You know, it's interesting because in the, um, in the book, Elizabeth is missing. One of the things that I highlighted was how Elizabeth is, excuse me, Maud is able to read people's, um, emotions towards her. So she'll, she will say in the book, oh, I see Helen, my daughter, her daughter, I see Helen's rolling her eyes. I guess I said the wrong thing or, oh, I feel like I'm not dressed the right way, but then I remembered that I'm old and nobody cares anyway. Or she'll say um, all these kinds of things where she's still very aware of how people are reacting around her and that she's done something wrong, even if she doesn't remember a split second later, what it is. And I think that's a hallmark that we've seen with our mom, which is you do have to be very careful with your emotion because she gets it and she'll either clam up or be upset. And the emotion stays even after the memory is gone. Yeah. And I think that happens more often when two of us or three of us are with her. For example, Polly and I were with her a couple of weeks ago together and she saw us talking quietly to each other. And we were in fact saying something about her. And she said, Oh, what did I do wrong now? And I felt so bad because she hadn't done anything wrong. It was just something unusual. I can't even remember exactly what it was. I think we were trying to play cornhole with her and (laughs) she had touched the wrong beanbag. And we were worried about 
their COVID restrictions at the nursing facility. We were trying to keep things very separate, but uh, they do absolutely still pick up on those verbal and nonverbal cues. Yeah. Um, But the final recommendation in this quick reminder section is accept the child's feelings, even as you stop unacceptable behavior. So for example, in the book, uh, the child is kicking their desk and the parent says, I can't allow you to keep kicking your desk. You might ruin the furniture, but you can tell me more about what's upsetting you or you can draw it. So with our mother, it might be more something like, you know, she likes to wear a big stack of bracelets on her wrist, but sometimes we can see that the bracelets are constricting her blood flow and they're, you know, they're things that she'll put on her wrist that can be really tight. And if we start to remove them, she doesn't like that. She gets frustrated. She wants to keep the stack of bracelets on. So I'll, you know, kind of try to like play around with them and say, you know, oh, you know, I can tell you love these bracelets. They're really nice, but I can't let you just keep this because you could hurt yourself. And let's just take them off one by one and make sure they're all okay and comfortable. And usually she'll just kind of relax a little bit and let me look at them. Great. What stands out to me is that your book is actually for children, but in our mother and in my father-in-law, watching them go from being maternal and paternal figures in the uh, hierarchy of a family, it, it they they are more childlike uh, in their inability to deal with their feelings in what would be an appropriate way for an adult. So it's it's just great that a book like that has some universal human principles to glean from it. It may have been written for children, but yeah. we can apply meaning to it to other Absolutely. segments. Absolutely. Say the name of the book one more time. How to Talk So Kids Can Learn, but by the authors of the most best-selling uh, book that they wrote, which is How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. Great. Alan, you want to go next or do you want me? Sure. Yeah, I'll be happy to go next. The book I want to share is called The Urban Monk by Pedram Shojai. And before I tell you what the book is about, the reason I chose it is so um, I live away from our mother and am not able to see her uh, anywhere near as often as I would like. And early on in this journey, I, um, I, when I would think about my mom, the first thing that I would feel was um, guilt, anger, and frustration with myself because I felt like I wasn't thinking about her enough, um, doing enough, offering enough uh, empathy, and just didn't feel like I had really internalized the the weight of you know this this huge aspect of my mother being, um, being gone already and just was sort of going through a period in my life where this was one thing on top of a bunch of things where I just felt like I wasn't able to really sit with anything and just allow myself to feel. And that was because I'm, I'm just so caught up in, I really like my job and career. I really, I, I really like, um, that my, my family life, my, my kids, uh, and, you know, it's just, just caught up in, 
in modern uh, in, in modern life, a lot of travel, a lot of uh, a, a lot of everything. And so uh, this book, the the Urban Monk, the the subtitle of it is um, Eastern Wisdom and Modern Hacks to Stop Time and Find Success, Happiness, and Peace. And so the the author. He was going to UCLA medical school, you know, studying Western medicine and ended up leaving and um, became a monk for several years. And so the the book is written from the sense of like, hey, really busy Western modern people. I spent all this time up in the mountains with the monks and gleaned all this wisdom that I'm going to share and say it to you in a way that um, is going to make sense for you to uh to receive it so the biggest or one of the biggest insights that i got from the book was was rethinking what i did during the precious downtime that i'm able to carve out for myself in a uh, in a given year so last year my uh my wife tina got to um got an assignment where she uh, where we lived in los angeles for uh for a month and uh, at first, I was just maximizing how I was going to, you know, what was I going to do every day while I was living in L.A.? And boy, I couldn't waste and squander that opportunity. And then I read this book and it talked about how we were sort of brainwashed that there's this value in being busy and doing stuff and a to-do list and checking it off. And, and that's the key to a fulfilling life. And in, and in reality, what we need is more time, more space to be, to be still and not seeking this outward validation, um, but more of an, an inward journey. And reading that was such a relief because suddenly I made no plans while I lived in Los Angeles for, for that month. Literally, I maybe had you made plans uh, with me when I was visiting. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, I had about a half dozen plans, one of which was uh, Tracy and, and her family. Her son, Luke, lives in Southern California as well. But those are family plans. You know, that, that was yeah. a pleasure. And because I had so few plans, I was really excited and had time and space to plan that day. Whereas if I had set up in my normal lifestyle, it would have been a stressful thing to think about and plan and the narratives that go to your head. Oh my God, I'm hosting my family. And I haven't even thought about what we'll, what we'll do. So I was really um, grateful as well as like proud of being able to host that, um, that particular visit. Um, and, and so in that space and, and stillness, it, it really helped me just having time to think um, thoughts about my mom came at the the rate and pace that I thought seemed seemed right. And I was able to be a little less hard on myself. So one of the things it also talks about is just practice meditating and some easy ways to do it. So when you first start, you're just like, ah, oh, I can't do it. It's just all these thoughts and distractions. And, and you learn that suddenly there's there's repetition to some of these thoughts and distractions that distract your meditations. And so those are the things that you sort of need to work through in order to get to, you know, a clearer sense of of meditation. So, um, so my mom would come to me a lot in that. So, uh, that was really helpful. And, um, and, uh, even though I very deliberately made very few plans, um, that's not to say that plans didn't come to me. Um, and so 
but I got to be, instead of the pressure of the, uh, the orchestrator, or the catalyst of these plans, I got to be sort of more of um, a willing participant on, on different journeys and things. So, so that's been really great and really helpful for me um, of when I, when I do have space, I'm not trying to populate it with lots of things and plans and visits and other things. I, I find that um, there's a lot of peace and um, the solitude and, and stillness and things. So, so that was really helpful for me. So that was a big one. Um, and then just two smaller ones I thought I'd mention is um, he talks about um, having the bedroom be for nothing but sleeping um, and let's just say intimacy, he, he describes it uh, um, in another way, nothing else. Don't have anything plugged in. You know, he talks about um, electromagnetic waves and just all this stuff that we're surrounded by that makes us, that makes us crazy. So I don't even, I don't even have my phone charger plugged in on my, uh, on my night table anymore. Um, my bedroom is a much nicer room to work out of than the room that I actually do work out of um, now that we all work from home. Um, but I don't want to work out of that bedroom. I only want it for, uh, for sleeping um, and the, uh, the other thing. Um, and, and so the room is, the room is dark and cold and uh, cold in a good way, meaning like, you know, nice warm blanket, cold head. Yeah. Um, and I sleep great and I take sleep really seriously uh, as well. Can you read a book in there? Is that allowed? Uh, I do. Um, I, okay. I, I do. And yet, um, uh, I, I do find that, but um, not on your Kindle, m- most of my reading I'm doing on my phone, on my, uh, on <laughs> right. my Kindle. Um, I'd like, that's something that I'd like to change, but I'm not, uh, I'm not quite there yet. Um, but this book, the, the urban, the urban monk really, um, helped me a lot in so many ways. And so that the couple things I'm mentioning are two things out of probably 100 really useful things in there uh, as well. And sleep is so important. They're discovering too with uh, relation to Alzheimer's and dementia. And once yeah. you lose sleep, they say you really can't catch up on it. So I used to be one that would sleep as much as I could on the weekend. And, uh, it would be to try to make up for the lack of sleep I had during the week, but apparently that doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, the same is true with caffeine and he talks about it in this book as well, that caffeine is sort of like a credit card where you're borrowing energy, but you, you deplete it and and you've got to make up for it, uh, later, or you pay the price for it later. Um, so I've also changed my relationship with with caffeine and and coffee. I don't um, my relationship with with it isn't. Oh, I need some energy, and I, I just every now and then, if I want a cup of coffee for for the taste or um, just for you know the morning ritual of just holding something um, something warm, or you know, I'm on so many Zoom calls in the morning with a colleague. I kind of like doing something similar to another human being. So, um, that that's what I like about coffee. I, I don't think about it as a, uh, as a drug or a tool to, to give me, uh, energy. That's, that's interesting. Do you not have coffee every day then? I don't have coffee every day. Um, I, I will, um, in its place, I'll drink green tea. Yeah. Um, and, and what's great is that 
you can drink a lot of green tea and, you know, there's less caffeine in it, but it's a different feeling and, uh, an energy, you know, I'll stop drinking the green tea after say like one or 2 PM as well. So it doesn't affect my ability to sleep at night. And lots of good antioxidants again, good for brain health. Absolutely. I want to get that book, Alan. That sounds great. Um, well, can I talk about my book now? Yes, Please. please. All right. So, you know, I think a lot of the things I did as I watched mom, you know, descend further into dementia was out of fear. How can I make sure this doesn't happen to me so my kids don't have to watch me go through this? And there are studies that show perhaps 30% of Alzheimer's can be, um, of the cases are um, due to diet and changing your diet can maybe prevent 30% of cases or at least hold off the onset of dementia. So my book is Brain Food by Dr. Lisa Moscone. Um, So Dr. Moscone is the director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Weill Cornell um, in New York City. Um, She has a PhD in neuroscience and nuclear medicine and she's also a board certified integrative nutritionist and holistic healthcare practitioner. So she's really got to get her life together. I mean, you know, she's okay. No. <laughs> I feel lazy. The thing about her is she's seen inside our brains. I mean, mine and Bonnie's. She creates uh, nuclear medicine or markers that will highlight, say, the plaque in your brain or um, how your body is using glucose, for instance. But So she wrote this book about what you should eat for your brain. And it's fascinating. I mean, first she goes through how humans have lived on earth, humans of some form in some form have lived on earth for 5 million years. And all that time they've been hunter gatherers um, and homo sapiens have only been on earth for 500,000 years. Um, And she points out that our brains are just not genetically prepared to consume the modern diet of processed food and lots of animal protein. It was all hunting and gathering before. So in her book, she tells us, she tells you what you need to eat to reach optimum health and mental sharpness. So this book is a comfort to me and such a learning mechanism. Um, I can't say that I do everything correctly, but it's really nice to come back to it. Mine is well-worn and has pages marked and to really reset and see what I should be eating. So her, she has a chapter that describes what you would eat in a typical brain healthy week. That's really helpful to me. There's recipes in there. And also her number one tip is to drink lots of water. Your brain needs water. And she describes in the book, it might've been, she also did a TED talk one time, but she describes how she's seen in her brain imaging study, what happens when your brain gets water, how it just really, you know, pops and is happy, but warm water gets to your brain faster. So because of that, I have warm water here, just water. And I drink a glass of warm water every morning because I tend to wake up feeling kind of dehydrated. So it's just one important tip. Do you Um, drink it warm out of your tap or do you put it in the microwave? I put it in the microwave and I don't okay, particularly care for just warm water. So I usually put a squeeze of lemon. Sometimes I'll do like ginger and cayenne pepper, but you know, I, I wake up kind of bleary and half awake probably cause I'm dehydrated, but 
So <laughs> warm water. Um, what okay. What's another one? Because I, I hear water and I'm like, oh, of course. What, what What might be one that would be interesting or surprising? Um, well, her um, she also has a food pyramid that looks very different from the food pyramid we've seen. And the bottom <laughs> of the food pyramid is water. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm oh, laughing wow. because the one that I'm, I, you know, I grew up in the 1980s and I think like, was it like bread? <laughs> like lying the bottom? Yeah, you should have as much <laughs> herbs, as many bread as possible. As possible. Yeah. I, don't, yeah. I don't know what food I wish lobby it was created. still that way. Right. Yeah. Bread, um, pasta. Some of my days I do kind of tend to focus on that. I just had my birthday yes. and I, I had, never mind. It just, just let's tomato say it pie. Right part of the food pyramid. Yeah, tomato <laughs> pie. There were tomatoes really, in there. There were tomatoes and also um, basil, which is a leafy green vegetable. So her second tip, the second most important thing to eat is to focus on berries, cherries, citrus, kiwi, apples, and leafy greens. That's the next part of the pyramid. And of course, all those things contain antioxidants, uh, polyphenols, they're what your brain needs. And of course, instead of eating a lot of meat, I don't remember what level on the pyramid it is, you need to have um, the Mediterranean diet, really. Um, so really, if you think hunter-gatherer, things you might gather and eat mostly, um, and uh, not processed food, I think that that would be the very simplified version of it but the way she takes you through it and explains and how it's going to help your brain and what she's seen in brain imaging studies i i found very compelling and um you know i think i need stuff like that because i'm afraid i'm afraid of alzheimer's um and i want to maximize my brain and of course meditation is important as well so highly recommend the book i'll show you the food pyramid in here and it is just really um, different from what you've seen. Let me get my glasses on. So I will say, I want to point out to Tracy at the very top of her healthy brain food pyramid, it says dark chocolate, um, <laughs> five to seven servings per week. Ooh. Okay. So she's a big, um, a big proponent of dark chocolate contains a lot of good things for you. You don't want to eat a bar of dark chocolate. Um, well, that's my problem. If I think I can have it five to seven times a week, one serving every day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I have a hard time once I start, I can't stop. So yeah, yeah. I might um, start one day with one small piece, then the next day, it would be two small pieces, then the next day, four small pieces, you get the idea. Yeah. <laughs> well, she also has red meat on here, but a maximum of once per week. Um, oh, interesting. Poultry. Oh, that's yeah. reasonable. I can. Yeah. I have a question. Does she get into uh, fish and how to avoid toxins like mercury that are in fish? She do. She does talk about wild caught fish and okay. um, that sort of thing. And I, I will let you read it in the book because my summary will not be nearly as good as hers. But I can post some stuff about it. Um, she does say fish that you want to have three plus servings per week. And that is the main sort of protein, even, um, well, it's the same as nuts and seeds, three plus servings per week. So um, I think Tracy and I were recently discovered that we eat exactly the same breakfast every morning. And that is, so Tracy and I both have um, Greek yogurt, plain, um, a fermented food, which is 
in the food pyramid that Lisa yeah. Moscone puts as well in brain food. Same. Um, yeah. So um, with nuts, three kinds of nuts, walnuts and almonds and pecans, I, and then honey, like raw honey, um, a little bit of that. I put chia seeds in mine. Tracy, did you do chia seeds as well? No, I do coconut flakes. Coconut flakes. Yum. Even better. But again, we've... Uh, and berries really incorporated that and you feel better and the berries we yeah. we do a mix of uh well i don't know what you do blueberries raspberries and um strawberries yes, i also will I do, do whatever i sometimes. have yeah. yeah i eat that too a lot but usually not at breakfast time we usually have it at lunch i have the exact same thing wow. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> amazing so plain greek yogurt i i don't use a variety of different nuts i just raw almonds um I'll, I'll pour a little bit of olive oil uh, on it oh, uh, uh, as well. Yeah. Um, and what I, I, I'm not sure that I've identified what's the good fruit and bad fruit, but it's usually bananas and, and different types of uh, berries, kiwi, oranges. Yeah. Um, and yeah, bananas I agree. It's amazing. Histamine. Yeah. You, so how, what, what, what a fun thing, what yeah, a fun thing to yeah. discover. We're all doing the same thing. I couldn't believe it. I was, went to Tracy's house for an outdoor visit and um i couldn't believe it. she's like here you can have the same breakfast as me and i could tell both of us were like could not wait to dive into this breakfast because you come <laughs> to anticipate it and it's like it's so good best, it's the best um it's the best thing whereas i would say before i started on this journey with mom i ate yogurt but i would get the kind with sugar in it and oh, we yeah. i think we've read and this that's in brain food as well and other books that sugar can be damaging to your brain, to your body, especially the high sugar that comes in processed foods. So we're, you know, I should point out, we're all doing the same thing, getting the unprocessed fermented Greek yogurt without sugar in it. So, um, yeah. Anyway. Uh, the book, the urban monk that I talked about refers to sugar as the devil. Yeah. Wow. Well, it is for me. Cause once you have a little bit, you just want more. Yes. I, I was just going to say the same thing. That's why I stopped getting regular yogurt. I'll eat it as a treat occasionally almost. But if I do that, I spiral. And yeah. I, I've been able to trace it back to that because I used to think of it as a good, healthy food to eat for you know lunch or a snack. But then you know all I do is crave sugar for the rest of the day. Yeah. yeah. Well, this has been a great episode. We will uh, post links to all these uh, all these great books. Um, we're just for um, ordinary people in terms of any expertise with Alzheimer's. Our credibility is uh, the journey, but these books are highly credible, written by um, people who are experts in their field. And in our opinion, we think they'd be of great benefit to anyone um, going through their own mental health journey uh, among themselves uh, or with a loved one. We're all in the fam. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Thank I'm going to go eat some yogurt now. Thanks for listening to All's in the Fam. In the fight against Alzheimer's and dementia, we are all family. Find us at All's in the Fam on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and on our website, allsinthefampodcast.com. We appreciate you clicking that subscribe button on Apple, Google, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast catcher may be. Alzheimer's sucks, but we are in it together. We are All's in the Family. Talk soon.